Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to our very first episode, The Bare Knuckle Fighter. In this episode, I'll be sharing with you a story about an ancestor of mine that I found so fascinating, it prompted me to create this podcast. In most of our upcoming shows, I'll be interviewing other people. However, since this one is about my great-granduncle, I'll be the one being interviewed. So I've asked my wife, Kelly, to join me on the show today to help facilitate this. So I want to welcome Kelly. Thanks, James. I'm really excited to be joining you on our very first podcast. Yes, it's, a, it's very exciting and particularly to have you on the show with me today. Thank you. So why don't we get started with my first question is, how did you start researching your great-granduncle Orville Gardner? Well, actually, I didn't start researching him initially because I didn't even know he existed. I had never heard about him. I knew nothing about him. I was actually researching my great-grandfather, his brother, Frederick, who was, he had his roots in Newark, New Jersey, so that's close to where we live. So I started there, and while I was doing that, I came across this information about his brother, Hezekiah Orville Gardner. I thought, who is this guy? And then I was thrilled to find out that he was actually quite a character in the mid-19th century. So what did you learn about his early years, where he was born, and where did he grow up? Well, it turns out almost all of the Gardner children were born in Washingtonville, New York, which is near Newburgh. It's in Orange County. And Hezekiah, who was older than my great-grandfather, was born in 1824. Now, his father's name was Hezekiah, and his mother's name was Margaret. And they had 15 children altogether. Wow, that's a lot of children. It's a giant family. And his dad was a dairy farmer. So that's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of hands to work on the farm, but it's also a lot of mouths to feed. So basically what happened from there was that the elder Hezekiah decided to move his family down to Newark, New Jersey. And I'm not quite sure why, but I'm pretty sure it's because there was a Gardner family shoemaking business in Newark. And perhaps he went down there to start to work there. Maybe things weren't going as well up in the Washingtonville area with this dairy farming business. Not quite sure. So what happened after they moved and got settled in Newark? Well, what happened, sadly, in 1836, well, I shouldn't say 1836, that's the year they moved, uh, 1842, uh, Hezekiah Sr. passed away. Oh my. And yeah, so Margaret was left with all these kids. There were probably some of the older children had moved out at this time, but she had a lot of kids left. And her attention was spread very thin. And she had... Two particular sons of hers, Hezekiah Orville, who was called Orville, and to distinguish him from his dad, Mm -hmm. and Howell, his younger brother, were two of the brothers who got in particular trouble. They were unsupervised. They were out on the streets of Newark. They were getting into trouble. And most of the time, that trouble was fighting. So a lot of the people in the neighborhood actually referred to them as those awful gardener boys. And that's the reputation that they had at that time. That's not a good way to start. No, not at all. And being out on the streets, uh, Orville, who was pretty much, he was the tougher probably of the two. He actually got into a fight with a bully one time who challenged him and he made short work of the bully. But then the bully's older and bigger cousin came to challenge this upstart and into a fight. That fight really turned into a mess. It was a literal and, f- and figurative mess. It was 
It rolled out of a tavern into a street, and they, they were throwing each other down into the, into the road, which was covered with mud and horse manure and, and all those things. It was like a, a scene from an old Western type of a thing. Something like uh, Bonanza. Bonanza or Gunsmoke, absolutely. And actually, Orville became the winner when his opponent struck his head on the ground and was unconscious. And sadly, uh, the opponent died from his injuries. So Orville was hauled in front of a magistrate to face charges that he killed this guy. But the magistrate uh, found him not guilty because several witnesses, including the, the poor man's cousin, told the magistrate that Orville had acted in self-defense. So, he, he so got what off. would have happened had he been found guilty? Well, back then, there's a high likelihood he would have been hanged. I mean, it was the 1840s, and uh, they, it would have been swift justice. Uh, certainly, at best, he would have gotten a long prison sentence at that time. So even though the magistrate found him not guilty and he acted in self-defense, what did he do with him? The magistrate did not want to deal with him anymore. Even though he had not put him in jail or hanged him, he wanted to get him out of his hair. So he ordered that he leave the city of Newark. So he was basically thrown out of his hometown. Yeah, he was thrown out of his hometown, and he had to find somewhere to go. So even though he was pretty young at the time, he may have been, oh, I don't know, 16 or 17, he tried to join the army, and he lied about his age. And he was quickly found out. And he was tossed out, and that was the end of his military career. That was a very short career. Very short career. I don't even think he got a uniform. So <laughs> that, that was how short that was. But what he did do was to decide to go back into Newark. He snuck back, and he, he had a girlfriend, I guess, at the time. Her name was Amelia. And he married her. And at this point, it was the year 1844, I'm sorry. And they together left with, their, with his brother Howell to go to New York City to strike out on their own because he, he didn't want to be found out by the authorities. So once they moved to New York, what happened to them? Well, a lot of stuff happened when they moved into New York. First of all, there was a little incident I want to tell you about on their way into New York. The three of them were on a wagon and some highway robbers approached them. It was uh, one guy was clearly the ringleader and he had two thugs with him. And they tried to rob the uh, three of them. And awful Gardner jumped off the wagon and engaged the leader in a big fight. Well, that's shocking. Oh, it's very shocking. It was so, so untypical of him, you know. And Howell stood on top of the wagon with a pistol aimed at the other two men so that they wouldn't jump in and try to help their friend. And uh, Orville won the fight uh, pretty quickly with this guy. I don't think this guy knew who he was harassing and stopping. No, he had no idea. He, he was... Uh, attempting to rob somebody who was like, it's like trying to attack a crocodile, <laughs> basically. So once they got into New York, finally, and settled, then how did their lives change and what did they do? Well, what happened was, uh, I guess earlier, while they were in Newark, Howell and Orville were following, I guess, newspapers or hearsay or whatever they were hearing from people in the, in the community, that there was this very famous boxer by the name of Yankee Sullivan, who was not a big guy, but he was a very clever fighter, and that he was able to take on some young men as sort of um, protégés of sorts, and he was teaching them how to box. So the two of them decided to go underneath his tutelage, and he became their mentor, and he trained with them, and he, he actually got them ready for fights. Now, as a trainer... This guy, Yankee Sullivan, would 
likely take a cut of their winnings if they run, won any fights for which there were bets or prizes put up. So, but he got them into pretty good shape, and they took on the very fearsome nicknames that would stay with them the rest of their lives, Horrible Howl and Awful Gardener. And Orville's nickname was Awful. So those names were meant to intimidate people. So I guess they became pretty popular. They became very popular. They started winning a lot of fights and getting a lot of press, and people were following them. People started to talk about them. The two of them figured they didn't need Yankee Sullivan anymore. So, you know, why should they split their winnings with him? So they left him and went off on their own. So is that typical for boxers to change their managers during the middle of their careers, even though it was still illegal at that time? Well, it, it, it probably wasn't too typical, but it depended. You know, they, they were doing so well, they just didn't feel that they needed him anymore. And why the heck should they split any of their winnings? They felt that they, they were fast learners, put it that way. Orville and Howell, they, they couldn't be fighting all the time. No. So in, in between fights, what were they doing to earn a living? Okay, well, one of the things they would do in between major prize fights, there would be what would be called exhibition fights. These were usually just small stake type of things where they could win a few bucks or they could win a basket of wine or something like that. But uh, the two of them also got involved in gambling. They would get involved in betting on other fights. They would bet on cockfights, dogfights, card games, types of things like that. But Orville particular got involved in emigrant running. And what is that? Emigrant running was when a usually some sort of bruiser guy would be hired by hotel keepers, slumlords, steamboat captains, people like that, to board the ships of recently arrived immigrants. And most of them would be uh, Irish immigrants who had come to escape the potato famine. And he would board the ships and he would lure them to some of these crooks who would likely steal their money and swindle them, you know, scams and things like that. And these poor people barely had a two cents to rub together and very few possessions. And these emigrant runners would basically rob them. At this point, was Orville earning any money legally? No, I don't think so. He, <laughs> he, he wasn't finding enough money in anything legal. So boxing was illegal. He was, what was going on at the same time, though, is that he was doing a lot of, as I said, gambling, but he was doing a lot of drinking because a lot of these guys uh, who were also doing illegal activities were dragging him from tavern to saloon. And because he was so popular, they would buy him drinks or if he won a fight, he would buy them drinks. And he became addicted to alcohol and rum was his drink of choice. That was the drink that he preferred. Right. And... I think you were saying he very easily would start fights. Oh, yeah. He Did he fight with any, just anybody? Uh, sailors, I know, because you mentioned ships and things like that. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that, because there was one article that said while Orville was... See, he used to hang down by the shipyards waiting for the ships mm -hmm. to come in. And he, was, he would get bored. And other ships would come in with sailors on board, and they would sometimes go out drinking and then they would see him down there and then the toughest of them would challenge Orville to a fight because he was so notorious. He would, he would get into a fight with these guys and there was one article that said that he actually trounced four sailors at the same time. Oh, wow. 
Wow. Uh, you know, he had to keep in, in shape and he wanted to keep his reputation and he did things like that. The other thing he used to get paid for was to be a shoulder tapper. Okay. Now, do you know what a shoulder tapper is? No. No. Well, shoulder tappers were, again, usually tough guys who were hired by pretty sleazy politicians who wanted to have these guys force people to vote for them. So what they would do is go around during election days and tap people on the shoulder and physically drag them over and make them vote for their candidate. And if they didn't, it would be uh, not a good outcome for no, them. No, it would be what we would call a knuckle sandwich. Ooh. That's what they would receive. James, you mentioned earlier that Orville was married. Did he and his wife have any children? Yes, they did. They had one son. They only had one child, and it was Orville Jr. was his name. Amelia was often playing the part of father and mother because he was away all the time doing something. He just, he loved his little boy. He loved him a lot, but he still put gambling and drinking and fighting first. So that was, that was sort of the thing that kept him from his son. But what I do want to say is that Orville's biggest payouts were in the major prize fights. Okay. So let's go back to that. Sure. His first majorly billed prize fight was against a Scottish champion by the name of Alan McPhee. When you think about how people traveled back then, it's the 1840s. This guy came all the way from Scotland to fight against awful Orville Gardner. The fight went 33 rounds. Wow. And Orville won the fight after giving the guy a, a severe beating. But this guy was tough, was as tough as nails as well. And remember, let's think about fighting back then. While today, a professional fight would be, I think, 12 three-minute rounds. They would be timed rounds. They would have padded gloves. They were regulated. Okay. And back then, they were bare fists. So you can imagine a bare fist crashing against your face or your stomach or whatever. The rounds were not timed. and They only ended when one of the boxers either hit the floor with their knee or part of their body. And as far as that would be when the round ended. But the fight continued as many rounds as needed until somebody couldn't get up anymore. So they weren't for the faint-hearted. No, I would say not. Did Orville fight in any other major fights? Yes, he did. He had another one uh, not too long after that against a boxer by the name of William Hastings. And his nickname was Dublin Tricks. They all had nicknames. They all had nicknames. And he was obviously of uh, Irish descent. And he was a, a tavern owner, and uh, people were afraid of this guy. This guy was also a tough guy. And so when the, when the fight was coming up, it was really talked about. So when the fight took place, again, it was, a, it was a rough and tumble event. But Orville, early in the match, dislocated his shoulder, which put him at a, a severe disadvantage. Absolutely. And then as time went on, Orville was like fiercely trying to knock him out. So he was using all his might and he actually broke two fingers in his right hand that were so badly broken that later on they were actually amputated. Wow. Did that end his career? Well, not entirely, but it certainly put a damper on it. But it certainly ended the fight because he lost the fight and that was really the first time he ever lost. So it was a big blow to his ego and uh, what he thought could have been his career. Sure. So after he was defeated by Hastings, did his fame subside? Actually, not at all. No, not at all. Because he was still sought after for all his knowledge because he knew how to box. He knew... All there was to know about boxing. So he was sought after for as a trainer and a corner man. 
And he actually, he was sought after by a man named John Morrissey. And John Morrissey was a up-and-coming boxer. He was, a lot, he was younger, and he was also a rising star in Tammany Hall politics. And he was sought after as a, as a manager because, frankly, people felt with him literally and figuratively in their corner that they could beat anybody. So he was doing for them what Yankee Sullivan had done for him several years earlier. Absolutely. Same thing. Same thing. So what happened then? Well, after a bit of time, uh, there was a, actually a major fight was scheduled between John Morrissey and guess who? Yankee Sullivan, the old trainer and now nemesis of Awful Orville Gardner. And was this fight, did this ta- fight take place in New York City? No, it didn't. It actually took place in a place called Boston Corners, which was on the border of Massachusetts and New York State. It was uh, scheduled to be up there for a couple of reasons. One was that there was a major railroad hub up there at the time, so people could get there from New York City. But it was also an area where there wasn't much law enforcement. It was kind of a no-man's land. And as I, I think I mentioned before, prize fighting was illegal back in the 1850s. This is a good way to avoid the law. So it happened up there, and the fight went, I think, 37 rounds, and Morrissey was declared the winner by the referee when Yankee Sullivan did not come to scratch. The term scratch means he didn't come to the center of the ring because he was engaged in a fight with, guess who? Let's guess. Um, Awful? Awful Gardner, (laughs) yes. He He had charged into the ring and grabbed the hold and started punching Yankee Sullivan because... He had seen that Sullivan had committed a foul against John Morrissey. And he didn't want him to get away with it. And that. he didn't want him to get away with it. So while Yankee Sullivan was engaged in awful, uh, Morrissey was declared the winner. Now, after that decision, it wasn't taken well by the supporters of Yankee Sullivan. And a big brawl broke out. And it just poured out of the ring. It, it ended up being mayhem all around the area. There was like a, a riot. Like a riot. Looting and rioting. You can imagine, you had about actually 3,000 people attended this fight. And a lot of them were probably well-oiled with booze. And a lot of people had money on it. And you can imagine tensions and anger was really raging. So it actually turned into a, a terrible event. So what happened to Awful then? Well, he was actually arrested. Oh, boy. <laughs> he was arrested for his role in that uh, fight. And he actually went to jail for it. So did... After he spent time in jail, I don't know how much time he spent there, but probably long enough to think about things. Did he do anything differently? No, he didn't really. He he sort of went back to his old ways again. And on one occasion, while emigrant running, he approached a guy about using a steamboat that he was touting. And the man said, you know, get lost. Leave me alone. So Orville did what he did best. He Broke the guy's jaw with a pair of brass knuckles. Of course. Yeah, and he went away for that too. Uh, He went to Blackwell's Island. It was a penitentiary on what is now Roosevelt Island in New York City, and he did some time there as well. So he his life was obviously out of control, and he was getting into so much trouble. How long did this go on for? Well, it went on for a little while, and then really a major tragic event started to change things around for him. 
In October of 1854, at the foot of Warren Street uh, on the west side of Manhattan, his uh, seven-year-old son, Orville Jr., uh, who had actually been out playing with some boys on the dock, he fell off the dock into the water and he drowned. Oh, how horrible. Yes, so you can imagine the, the absolute grief uh, that his mother had because at the time, Orville was away on one of his escapades. So he wasn't reached right away. The body was brought back to his mother's house and word was was taken to Orville, who I think he was actually running from the law at the time. And he came back and he was absolutely grief stricken by it. He felt terrible about it. And at this time, for the first time ever, he started to look at his life and say, I don't like myself anymore. And I know that if I don't change things, I'll never get to heaven to see my little boy again. Right. So did he change things? Well, not initially. When he started to look sort of deeper than himself, he started to get more anguish. He didn't really, he didn't know what to do because he was addicted to rum and he kind of liked the cash rewards of training fighters because he would make a lot of money and then he'd go off on a spree, but he certainly had enough money. From what I understand, he still took pretty good care of his wife. He did care about her. He never was violent with her or anything like that. And he, he kept her provided with certain things, but he was never home. He really didn't help out much raising his son. Right. So now we've, you've been talking a lot about awful Gardner. What was going on with his brother Howell during this time? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Now, Howell at the time, he, I mean, he was still doing the things Orville was doing, maybe not to the extent, but he was still doing a lot of drinking and fighting and doing stuff like that. But one day in, I think it was the year 1856, he wandered into a tent meeting in Port Chester, New York. Now, a tent meeting, if you think of something like a Billy Graham crusade, like an old-time crusade where, say, churches uh, would send out evangelists or uh, itinerant ministers, and they would go from town to town. they put up tents, and people from all the, the town and different churches would come and sing hymns and do stuff like that. Right, they'd be there for maybe a few days and then move on to another town. And they'd move on. Well, for some reason, Howell wandered into a tent meeting one night and he was just absolutely bowled over. He, he, He accepted an altar call, he went up front and he said he gave his life to Jesus. And from that point on, he really changed his life. His whole trajectory changed. He started to help people, he started to encourage, he started to pray for people and go around and give his testimony. And one thing I got to note is that in the beginning, I mentioned that their mother and father were pretty devout Christians. His mother was still living at this time, and there's several uh, records that she was praying for her wayward boys. So she must have been very happy at this time about Howell. I'm sure she was. So did the change in Howell's life have any impact on Orville? Yes, I think it did, because first of all, Orville was seemed to be the closest with Howell. They, they seemed to be the closest. They were closer in age and things like that. But he saw something going on with his brother, and he just thought, wow, this is, this is kind of cool. I like what's going on with him. He's, he's really changing, but I could never change. You know, I'm, I'm stuck in this lifestyle. I'm stuck with this booze. I, I can't do this anymore. And also, what was going on at the same time, was the what they called a, a, a prayer revival back in 1857. There was a, a financial crisis that had taken place in New York around that time. 
and a lot of people were feeling down and out and broken and there was a prayer meeting that started i think only six guys showed up for the first one in manhattan and within within maybe a couple of months there were like tens of thousands of people it drove the people wow. going to prayer meetings. So Orville Gardner is now living with a, with a lot of regret over his son, mm-hmm. uh, feeling empty about his life, feeling frustrated that he's stuck, but he sees this amazing change in his brother, and he also sees all this prayer revival going on around him. But he still couldn't seem to get off it. He couldn't move off it. So he's curious, but he doesn't know how to change. Right. I mean, he's skeptical because he's thinking, I'm just not good enough. You know, I can't change. So did he ever change? Yeah, actually, uh, one one day, it took till about 1858. So this is a couple of years of, you know, Howell keep inviting him up there and trying to get him to go to prayer meetings, and he would. Uh, And then he would feel frustrated. But then all of a sudden, one day, while he was riding his horse home to New York City from Portchester, he kind of, he had an enlightenment. He he just felt like uh, that God moved in him. And he felt all of a sudden that he, he was saved, that he was suddenly free from his anger at enemies, that he, he no longer felt the guilt about his son's death. He felt he wanted to help people, not hurt people. And he embraced Christianity at this time. And, and he became really, really a changed man to the point where he knew his biggest and last obstacle was to get rid of his drinking problem. The rum. The rum. The rum. So he told a story about taking his last bottle of rum, his precious bottle, and rowing in a boat out to an island off the coast of either New York State or, um, or Connecticut. And he buried a bottle of rum. He buried this bottle of rum. So why would he bury it? That's a good question. Uh, why wouldn't he just smash it or pour it out? He was terrified that the smell, the fumes of the rum would be too much for him and that he'd want to drink. And he also couldn't throw it out or leave it somewhere Mm -hmm. because he was afraid someone else would find it and drink it. So something peculiar is happening here. He cares about other people. I mean, he always cared about his wife and his son, but he never really cared about anybody else but himself as far as other people were concerned. So here you go. The rum is gone. He no longer took a drop for the rest of his life. Wow. Yes. So now he's a, he's, a, he's a different person. So he started to go out, tell about his testimony. He started helping people. And he had a real passion for people who had problems with addiction. Right. And, and that's where he placed a lot of the focus of his ministry. So do you, it sounds like the new Orville had a positive effect on others. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Or I, it was beginning to? I think it was taking a, a really positive effect. He started to... Uh, reach out and do some some ministries and some local people in New York City. I think they were ministers or people in the community who saw that there was a terrible problem with alcoholism in New York City. Asked him to be the superintendent of what was called the Fourth Ward read, Coffee and Reading Room. Okay, and it was in the Bowery in New York. They asked him to run it because he was well-known and they knew people would come. And really what it was was kind of a non-alcoholic alternative to a saloon. So men could go and drink coffee and read newspapers and talk a little bit. 
That's but great. So it, did, great. You, did, did he ever go around uh, speaking with it, telling his, or sharing his testimony, or another word for that would be his story? Yes. To people all over, or was it just limited, the immediate? He would go uh, mostly in the New York City area, but he, he would go to churches and places maybe in the tri-state area. But one place that he really had a big impact was uh, one time he was invited to speak at Sing Sing Prison. Sing Sing was in New York State. And so, so that was a prison that he had previously been an inmate at. Correct, yeah. So, but now... He's there as a speaker. Yes, he was there. Uh, he originally was there for one of his many crimes. Who knows how long he spent in there, but he was in there, and he was invited to speak, and he stood up in front of the prisoners and gave a very heartfelt, tearful testimony about how his life had been changed through his Christian faith, that he spoke about the evils of, of alcoholism and, and some of the things of in his old life. Right, and, so he yeah. must have... I'm sure it wouldn't have been out of the question for him to run into anybody that he knew in his <laughs> his former life. Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of people there wouldn't have been surprised to see him as a prisoner again. Uh, but a lot, but the people who were there were surprised to see him giving his testimony and hear him. And one of those people was a man named Jerry McCauley. Now, Jerry McCauley was a uh, Irish-born river thief. Uh, he had he had a criminal record. And he was actually doing a 15-year sentence. He had actually run around with Gardner before. And the two of them were gamblers and did all sorts of stuff together. And he only knew Gardner to be sort of a rough, vile sort of guy. And he couldn't fathom seeing him there giving his testimony and crying and stuff like that. So Macaulay was so moved that when he eventually got out of jail, he and his wife founded an organization it was called the Macaulay Water Street Mission, and this was to help uh, people in the community who were down and out. Later on, years and years later, that became the New York City Rescue Mission, and I think as recently as 2017, uh, the Rescue Mission merged with two other groups, and it's now called the Bowery Mission, which serves thousands of homeless uh, people to this day. That's amazing that... Something started many, many years ago is still running, although it's in a, another form mm -hmm. and a different name. He really started that. Yeah, he really did. And I just wanted to go back to his reading room a little bit. Um, one of the things that he did was that it wasn't just giving them a place to drink coffee instead of alcohol. He was really concerned about the real down and out people, the people who were maybe penniless and homeless or who were going through terrible times and with their addiction, and he would bring them in and clean them up and give them something to eat and drink and encourage them. And he also wanted to make sure, and he shared the Bible with them, and he would also make sure that the men talked about their problems. Now, I think today men still have trouble sometimes talking about their problems, but people didn't talk about alcoholism much. That was like a taboo thing. You just did it, and uh, that was it. So... He would, he would encourage the people to talk, and he was there to answer questions. He was always there, and they were always looking for him. And one note is that on any occasions where there were uh, activities there or other places, and he was there and somebody was acting up, 
he could still be the bouncer as well as the facilitator. So people wouldn't act up too much around him. Wow. So he was going around speaking and taking care of the reading room. How was he able to keep up with all his activities? Well, actually, he wasn't. Uh, over time, he started to get very worn out, both his, uh, his speaking engagement schedule, the time he spent at the coffee house, the coffee room, and also, you got to remember, years of getting his head punched in by bare fists, the years of drinking and the effect it had on him, and he actually ended up having a stroke, oh. and uh, it disabled him to some degree, and also, the strangely enough, the reading room started losing some funding. You know, some of the people who were funding it sort of backed off after time, maybe because the civil war was about to start or what have you. Yeah, there could have been a number of reasons. A number of reasons. They started to withdraw the donations. And one thing of note, just to show the character that he now had, was that he would often go weeks without taking a paycheck because they didn't have enough money. Now, the paychecks he got were meager. They were just a fraction of what he used to make for training just one fighter. So he wasn't doing that anymore, but he also wasn't drawing a check. At one point, he actually went to Newark for a while to work in the shoemaking business just to make a few bucks. But Dang. he got very ill, and he was at one point in time, he was treated in a Morristown hospital for his disability from his stroke. But he did recover to some degree. Good. So what was... Howell doing during this time that his brother was slowing down in, the, in his ministry? Howell was actually fit as a fiddle. He was very strong. He was a, a little younger, but he somehow he, he hadn't had the disabilities that Orville did. And he was preaching all over the New York City area, New Jersey, Long Island. And he loved to go into some of the, the, some of the seedy dance halls that existed then. It was a place called McGlory's on Hester Street. And he would like to go in. Now, he would walk in, and these are places he used to go to. And yet, he didn't, they didn't throw him out. They, they loved to hear what he had to say. He cared about the people in there. As a matter of fact, he talked one girl out of entering a life of prostitution. So he was, he was well-liked, and people used to listen to him, but he used to preach the gospel in these places. He really had an influence with them. Oh, he was doing great. Now, sadly, in August of 1883, while Howell was on a steamboat called the Riverdale, he was going up the Hudson River to visit his wife um, for the weekend. And the boiler on the ship exploded, and the, it, it sent boiling hot steam all throughout the ship, and the ship sank in the Hudson River, and he survived it. Uh, the, the initial the initial explosion, and people actually saw that he was helping people to safety, and because um, he was that kind of, kind of guy. And he was, I believe, you had told me earlier that he was severely burned. He was severely burned. Uh, they brought him into New York Hospital, and they thought he was going to recover. And a lot of people were killed instantly on this ship. I know there's a big investigation about it and things like that. But sadly, he died a very short time later from his injuries because back then they didn't have antibiotics. Uh, he went into shock. They said, I know this is kind of disgusting, but they said that the, his skin was peeling off in sheets from the burn. So given his injuries and the medicine back then, the way they treated it, he, he passed away. So what happened at his funeral then? His funeral was a, was a huge event. It took place in New York City, and in the church during the funeral, there were church 
regular churchgoers who are used to sitting in pews every Sunday, sitting next to tavern keepers, boxers, prostitutes. And I say boxers, they were, that was illegal then, so they were criminals. And they were all there together, really singing hymns and listening to sermons about the wonderful giving man that Howell had become and the work he had done tirelessly in the area. And so he ended up becoming very respected. Very respected. And he was buried in Newark, New Jersey. And was Orville at his funeral? He was. Uh, he wasn't heard from too much more after that. But he was there, and he was rather infirmed. He wasn't well. Some said he was starting to, his mind was going a little bit. So they were, that people were concerned about that. And I know that he had trouble surviving with money in some cases. Right. So now you're saying he's sort of getting up there in years. He's in mm -hmm. failing health. Where did he end up? Well, he moved around bit by bit. Uh, he and his wife, Amelia, ended up in a nursing home in Metuchen, New Jersey, and he was later expelled from the nursing home because the head matron, a Mrs. Van Pelt, actually tossed him out, saying he was unruly because as he, she was a tough lady, right? I think she was as tough as he was. Almost, yeah. He could be very nice and sweet and everything like that, but sometimes I think he got, he used to get agitated and, and there would be some problems. So, he was thrown out, but he would go. He went back a couple times to visit her, and on one occasion, she wouldn't even let him in to see his wife, which was kind of sad. Yes, and eventually, very. she passed away. So from then on, uh, he went to poorhouses. So what exactly is a poorhouse? A poorhouse back in that time was a place where it was more or less a, like a government-run facility, a municipal, city, whatever. could be a state organization that helped the down and out. These were not often very good places. I mean, you've heard about workhouses mm -hmm. uh, in Europe, like Charles Dickens movies and things like that. They usually weren't a very good place to be. I mean, there, there could have been people with good hearts who served there and gave to those places, but they were often not very good places. And he was in and out of those places for a while. Wow. So he was living in poor houses and he wasn't, couldn't fight anymore. Health was failing, mm. but I do know... There was one story written about him as he got, when he was older like that. Yes. And about a barber shop. Yes, that's actually a cute story uh, that, that I like to tell. So I guess while he was living in one of these poor houses, he went to get a haircut. And he saw that there was a sign out that said, haircut, 10 cents. So he went in and he got his haircut and the barber wanted 25 cents. And Orville said, no, how about 15? So he was trying to compromise. He was compromising. He was bargaining a little bit. And the barber started getting agitated. And Orville started to apply some of his old, not boxing techniques, but his old evangelical techniques. And he started to tell about the importance of integrity to the barber. And the barber took offense to that and actually threw him out. And on his way out the door, Orville cut his arm on the broken glass on the door. And the police actually approached uh, Orville afterward and said, do you want to press charges against the barber? And what's comforting to know is that one of the last things that my great-granduncle was recorded as saying, while still somewhat in his right mind, was that he forgave mm. the barber. And he said, no, I don't want to press charges. And that was all written in an article? That was in an article, yeah. Wow. yeah. So 
What did you ever find an obituary for him? And do you know where and when Awful Gardner died? I was very frustrated for several years because I could not find an obituary on him. I found Howells. I was for, I was certain that I would find his somewhere because he was so famous. I found, right, and you found all the other brothers, or yeah, many of them. And and the other brothers, for instance, um, at least I found their graves. My, my great-grandfather, I found Howell. I found several other brothers of theirs, sisters of theirs. I found their graves. And um, I'm wondering where this guy is, this famous, the most famous brother, and where could he be? And I want to back up a little bit, too. Is like I never heard from anybody in my family about this guy. And, you know, it's not, it's not too, many, too many generations back. It was my grandfather's uncle. So right. why didn't I hear about that? That was really, really mystifying me. The only clue I ever had was that an elderly aunt uh, a number of years ago when I was a, a, kind of a, probably a teenager or so, she said to me, oh, your great-grandfather's brothers were boxers. And that's and that the only thing. Yeah, that was all I knew about it. So never found an obituary. However, a few years ago, I found some information and it came out. Uh, somebody had written about the Greystone State Hospital, which used to be the New Jersey Hospital, State Hospital for the Insane in Morris County, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Turns out that Orville Gardner spent the last year of his life in that hospital. And it was for obviously he had declined in mental health. And he was a patient at the state hospital for the insane. And like you said, it was later called Greystone. Yep. And just within the last year or two, the older section of that, of Greystone, was taken down. Yes, the old original hospital dating back, I think, to the 1870s was taken down. It might be about five years ago now, maybe a little, okay. maybe a little around that time. Uh, there is still part of the, the newer hospital, I think, that's still there. But uh, you can go there, and, and there's a park. But that's where it was, where he was. And we did find out where he was buried, at a nearby cemetery in Morris, near Morristown. And he was actually buried along with probably a couple thousand fellow patients from that hospital who died between the 1870s and the 1920s. Uh, without markers, without gravestones. These, many of them were buried in the bedsheets on which they died, and probably including Orville Gardner. Right, and, and relatives, it wasn't like today, going to visit a relative at a hospital or if they're ill. It wasn't like they didn't have that kind of travel back then. Certainly not as much. I'm not sure why uh, I never heard about this relative. It could be that for many years he'd become, his mind had started to go, and, and perhaps you know, nobody knew where he was half the time because he was in poor houses and communications were different back then. But it is kind of sad to know that Nobody really knew where he was even buried, and there was no obituary for this man after this amazing life change that he had and his fame that he had in life. And still today, you have not found an obituary. You found numerous articles mentioning him, and all, including these stories that you've just told us today. Yeah, there was only one article that was written just uh, maybe a couple years before he died where he had... He got into some trouble. He was detained by the police for giving a thumping to a fellow poorhouse inmate. 
but that was the last article that was was mentioning him. And at that point, he would he had really kind of deteriorated. So he he wasn't himself at that point. Wow. So, James, your uncle Orville, great uncle Orville, he led a life full of lots of twists and turns. How would you sum up his almost seventy years here on Earth? I'd say uh, it's an understatement to say it was an active life. Uh, mm -hmm. He certainly was probably impacted by the death of his father and moving out of a familiar t place where he was from in New York State. Uh, I think that he was trying to prove his manhood by fighting and being tough and not getting taken advantage of. Uh, I think that he was devastated by the death of his son and... You know, I just think he, he found a way of life that was exciting when he was younger, and he was always trying to prove something. But when his son died, it softened him up. And then when his brother came along and, and he started to see another alternative, that God had a purpose for him. At that point, particularly when he gave up the alcohol, his life, that void from the fighting and the gambling and the alcohol, he filled it with helping other people. And that's why I think the fourth ward coffee and reading room was huge and the evangelizing that he did and helping people just filled that so i think that was uh, kind of a it's kind of a sad end though that he really did end up paying the price uh, on earth anyway uh, for the life he led with the with the um the rum and the fists to the face and rough and tumble stuff it affected him but his changed life also impacted thousands to this day when you think of it that that brief amount of time he had between his old life and his mental deterioration is still impacting people at the Bowery Mission today so I'm I'm very impacted by that that's great well I want to thank you for sharing your story and not only is it your story but it's awful gardener's story too and I think he would be very proud of you for bringing this his entire story to life and sharing it with everybody and i think our listeners have probably found awful orville quite the character and i but i do want to ask you one more question sure and how is the researching and the telling of orville's story how has it impacted you and your life well i believe we can learn a lot from history in general but family history can touch us in a deeper way and it touched me in a deeper way because it helped me to feel personally connected with another place in time back in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. And it made me ask questions of myself, such as, you know, what would I have done if I had faced some of the challenges he did or the opportunities? Uh, would I have gone down the same road? Would I have made other choices? You know, these are questions we can all ask of ourselves when we reflect on the lives of our family and ancestors. I was moved by... This man's simple love that he had for other people in this short window of time in his life. And one thing I, I was really, I really have to say is that it was very sincere from what I read. It was brief. Some people might say it doesn't make up for all he did. But you know what? It was sincere and he really loved people and he cared about them. And for the time he had, he did his best. Just think some point I, I plan on writing a book about Orville because I would like to fill it with more of his escapades and more of the things that he did after his change. And I, I really want to do that. But for now, I hope that you've really enjoyed this colorful story of my great-granduncle, Awful Orville. 
who actually turned out to be not so awful after all. So, Kelly, I want to thank you so much for helping me out on this episode. And until next time, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.